you can take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Esther, chapter 6. Esther, chapter 6. It's not fair. Can't tell you how many times I've heard those three words before, or sentiments like it. I've heard it from wives whose husbands have cheated on them. I've heard it from people who have been slandered and lied about. I've I've heard it from people who previously championed moral tolerance and mocked the notion that there's an objective right and wrong until somebody wronged them. I've heard it from old people, and I've heard it from children on the playground. We all have this innate sense that things should work out right. We have this deep-seated desire for justice to be done for wrongs to be righted, for the guilty to pay for their crimes, for the righteous to be vindicated. It's why we like movies where the bad guys eventually get their comeuppance and the good guys get rewarded. It's why we feel so disturbed when we look around at the world, when we look at the news headlines, and it seems like the the forces of evil are on top and they cannot be stopped. Just read another news report about the atrocities that ISIS continues to commit in the Middle East, many of them Christians, and I know many people in various parts of the world, even in this country, living in fear of ISIS. And these can be unsettling times for us when it seems like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are suffering. And it seems like God's not doing anything at all. And it's during times like those that we need the book of Esther more than ever. The book of Esther provides some help and some encouragement for us because the world of the book of Esther is very much like the world you and I live in. It's a world where evil and corruption run rampant. It's a world that's unfair. It's a world where God seems absent. There are no big-time miracles in the book of Esther that are, that are obvious. You don't see God swooping in to save the day and parting the Red Sea like He does in Exodus. You don't see God raining down fire on His enemies like you do in Genesis. God's name is not even mentioned in the book. The author, on the one hand, wants God to appear as invisible and inconspicuous as possible. And on the other hand, as we read through the book of Esther, as we observe these little scenes, these little circumstances, these decisions that are made by the characters in the, in the story, it becomes increasingly obvious that behind all of this coincidental activity, there is an unseen power working in the background, and God's fingerprints are all over the book. And we're discovering in this book that even the most casual events that happen in life are actually connected to the purposes of God for His people. Things that seem small and seem inconsequential are appointed and directed by Him as a means to achieve His purpose, including the sinful and unjust actions of man. He is sovereign over those things as well. Now, at this point in our story in Esther, we we reach another critical juncture The villain of the story, Haman, has gotten King Xerxes to agree to a twisted plan of racial genocide. He wants to wipe out all the Jews. King Xerxes' queen, Esther, happens to be a Jewess. But nobody in the palace knows that. Because when she was first taken into the king's harem, Mordecai commanded her to keep her race a secret. 
In chapter 4, Mordecai sends word to Esther about Haman's plot to annihilate the Jews, and Esther makes the bold decision to confront the king to ask him to spare her people, even though such a confrontation might cost her her life. Last week we saw in chapter 5 that the king showed favor to Esther and in fact was greatly pleased with her. But when he asked Esther for her request, Esther in her wisdom knew the time wasn't right to drop this bombshell on the king, and she invites the king and Haman to a feast to honor them. And at the feast, Esther invites them to yet another feast, and she promises at such time she will reveal her request to the king. Haman, in the meantime, goes home happy and full of himself because he's being invited to these special private royal banquets with the king and the queen, but his happiness quickly sours when he encounters Mordecai, who once again refuses to bow before him. And as we saw last week, Haman, at the urging of his sweet, gentle wife, Zeresh, and friends, he decides he cannot wait until the day of Jewish genocide. He's got to kill Mordecai immediately. And chapter 5 ends with Haman's decision to build a gallows 75 feet high with the intention of asking the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. And that's where we are left hanging in this story, where we left off last week, and we'll pick it up today. So if you will please stand with me now in honor of the reading of the words of our God. We're going to start in chapter 6 and read through chapter 7. God's Word says, On that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on, Mordecai, bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and, uh, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Uh, leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. 
But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silenced, for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we thank you for it. And it is a fascinating and interesting and entertaining tale in some ways. And yet you have given this word to us not just to amuse us, not just to tickle us. You have a word for us this morning, Father, a word that is pointing to you, a word that is pointing to your truth. Father, I pray that you would lead us into that this morning into your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, I quoted C.S. Lewis, who once said, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. In other words, there's, there's really no such thing as coincidence, that even when you can't see evidence of God working, He's always working, sometimes quietly, in the background, behind the scenes, through quote-unquote, sovereign coincidences. That, that's, that sounds like an uh, oxymoron, doesn't it? Sovereign coincidences. I say sovereign coincidences because from man's perspective, things often seem random and purposeless. 
But in truth, not one event falls outside the purview of God's sovereignty, no matter how small. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the Father's will. God's sovereign providence rules over sparrows, and it rules over sleepless nights. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. What night? The night that Haman, or his cronies, were building the gallows to hang Mordecai on the next day. And so, in just a few hours, Haman would be in the court to get permission from the king to kill Mordecai. That night, of all nights, the king could not sleep. What a coincidence. But it gets better. Of all the king could have done in his insomnia, what does he choose to do? He doesn't have food brought to him. Isn't that what some of us do when we can't sleep? We might as well have a midnight snack. I'm up anyway. What's in the fridge? Could have had alcohol brought to him to relax him. He could have had a musician come and play a soft melody. He could have had dancers come. He, could have, he had access to all kinds of entertainments and diversions in the middle of the night. But instead, verse 1 says, He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. What are the chances of them bringing him this book on that night and reading to him this part of that book on this night? What part? Verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Remember, that was a few chapters back. This plot to kill the king and Mordecai got wind of it. You still believe in coincidence? Verse 3. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said nothing has been done for him. Now, that would have been outrageous to an ancient Persian king. Part of the way that ancient Persian kings demonstrated their magnificence and their awesomeness was was how they graciously would lavish rewards on those who had served the king well, and he hasn't had an opportunity to do that. Somebody has slipped through the cracks. Years have gone by since this. And so the king is shocked. Verse 4, and the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman, coincidentally, had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Huh. Fancy that. Verse 5, and the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now notice that the king just happens, coincidentally, to leave out the name of the person. He doesn't say. He, he, he doesn't say, What should be done to Mordecai? If he said that, I could see Haman saying, King, I'm glad you asked. That's why I'm here. I know what should be done to Mordecai. Instead, the king leaves out his name and says, What shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? 
Now, I don't know about you, but it almost seems like Haman is being set up by somebody, doesn't it? But it's not by King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus, whom I will call Xerxes often because it's easier to say, Xerxes doesn't know everything that's going on, and so if Xerxes is not setting him up, who is? Surely it is the God who is hidden. The God who we see is not as absent as one might initially think. Now, watch this. God is going to save Mordecai's life, and he's going to set Haman up for defeat. And God is going to use Haman's sin of pride to do it. Look at the end of verse 6. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman is one of the biggest egomaniacs in the Bible. It doesn't even occur to him in the least that Xerxes is thinking about somebody else because when you're a prideful person, it's all about who? It's all about me. If somebody over there is talking, they must be talking about me. If somebody was to lavish a reward to some, on someone, oh, they must be wanting to give me a reward, of course. What other conclusion can there be? When we are prideful, we take everything personal, both the good and the bad. One of the symptoms of pride is that we make everything all about us. We can't see past the end of our own nose. We can't stop gazing at our own navel. We never look up and see and consider other people. That's what Haman is doing. And so Haman, check it out, who's already number two in the empire, seeks to exalt himself even further. And so you see in verses 7 through 10 that Haman just goes for it here. He says, let this man be robed in the royal robes with the royal crown and let, he, let him be put on the king's own horse and parade it through the streets with cries saying, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Now you need to understand the magnitude of what Haman wants for himself. He wants the king's robes. He wants the king's horse. He wants the king's crown. Basically, Haman wants to be treated exactly like who? The king. He he wants the type of honor reserved for the king. Now, for someone to ask the king for this directly (laughs) could be considered borderline treason. The reason Haman had the gall to make this request in the first place is because he's making it on behalf of this nameless man in whom the king delights to honor. Of course, in Haman's mind, he thinks he's that man. There's a way for him to get what he wants but not have to ask the king directly for it. Oh, he's so clever, isn't he? But the king burst his bubble in verse 10. Look at this. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Now you give him the name. Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. And I love the little extra bit that the king adds in. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. Do it all. Just do everything. I like that. You're so generous all of a sudden, Haman. As an aside, in addition to everything else we are learning in Esther, can I just add one more thing? We are learning that God has an awesome sense of humor. Doesn't he? God's funny. This is funny. If there was any moment in the book of Esther 
where I'd give anything to be a fly on the wall, it would be this moment. Just to catch a glimpse of a jaw dropping to the floor. Just a a glimpse of, of the color draining from Haman's face in that moment would just have been priceless. Chapter 6 is a tremendous turning point in this book. I, I, I know I said about chapter 4 it was a turning point, and it was. This is another turning point. This is a big turning point where the evils that have been done and the wicked schemes that have been planned are beginning to be turned back. They're beginning to be reversed. The chapter begins with Mordecai's doom and his humiliation imminent. The chapter ends with Mordecai's life being spared and a prediction of Haman's doom from his wife of all people. And and though chapter 6 is the turning point in the book, it's interesting, none of the characters, not Esther, not Mordecai, nor anyone else is spotlighted as the cause of the reversal. As a matter of fact, we see that, that not even the most powerful people in the empire are in control of what's happening. In spite of having all the power of Persia at his disposal, Haman's carefully laid plans were being turned back against him. Why? All because the king simply had a sleepless night? Really? You see, the author is suggesting that beneath the surface of human decisions and actions, there is an unseen power at work that cannot be explained and cannot be thwarted. And the sovereign coincidences, they just keep piling up, don't they? Going into chapter 7, Queen Esther exposes Haman. The king just happens to leave the room in anger. And during that small window of time, Haman, in a tragically comical scene, is begging for his life practically on top of Esther. And it's in just that moment that the king just happens to come back into the room, just happens to see Haman in that awkward position, and it just happens to look like Haman is assaulting the queen. And the king's eunuch loved this guy. Harbona, what's up with this guy? I get the sense he never particularly liked Haman in the first place. Harbona just happens to be there, and he tells the king, um, king, by the way, there just happens to be a gallows outside. Imagine what Haman's thinking. Haman's thinking, why are you volunteering that information? Harbona says there just happens to be a gallows outside that Haman just happened to build yesterday, and it just happens to be ready for a hanging. What a coincidence! And the rest is history. Everything that happens in the book of Esther brings us a step closer to fulfilling the plans and purposes of God. We see God using ordinary and even seemingly insignificant events to fulfill His covenant promises to His people. A sleepless night, decisions of less than perfect people. We even see Him using the sins of others. One of the things that we're seeing in the book of Esther is that God is sovereign over everything, even evil. Haman's attempt at sinful self-exaltation brings about Mordecai's honor and Haman's humiliation. Haman is listing all these things to be done to the man that the king delights to honor. He is sinning in this because he is seeking self-glorification. But the very act of self-glorification, in that very act of self-glorification, 
Everything is turned on its head, and the king takes Haman's suggestion and bestows the honor upon Mordecai. The point is that even when evil seems to be having the upper hand, and a lot of times, let's be honest, it looks that way to our eyes, doesn't it? Even when evil seems to be having the upper hand, it's not. Even when it seems like evil is out of control and God is losing ground, he's not. Even though it may seem in the short term that wicked men are successful, gaining ground, frustrating the will of God, in truth, it is their own plans that are being ultimately frustrated and defeated and overthrown, even if you do not see that happening right now. As a matter of fact... This is where it gets mind-blowing to me. The sinful plans of man do not only not thwart the plans of God, they actually serve His plans and move those plans forward. This is very powerfully illustrated in the story of Joseph and his brothers in the, in the book of Genesis. I had a, I had a great time uh, with the, in the kids' class in Sunday school the past couple of weeks. We were going through the, the story of Joseph, and it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Many of you know it. Joseph's brothers attempt to block God's plan for Joseph from coming true by selling him as a slave. That's awful. That's unjust. And, and that seems like a significant setback to God's plans. In fact, Joseph experiences what seems to be a series of setbacks for many years. As he's a slave, as he's lied about, slandered, thrown in prison, forgotten by everyone. But read the whole story. And you'll see that Joseph's brothers, in their attempt to outmaneuver God's plans, actually set into motion a chain of events of sovereign coincidences that leads to Joseph's rise to power and fulfilling the very thing that the brothers were trying to prevent. That's why Joseph can say to his brothers in the end, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You had a design in all of this, but what you didn't know is that so did God, you lose checkmates. Haman seeks to destroy Mordecai. And the means by which Haman seeks to do it through hanging ends up becoming his own undoing. You lose, Haman, checkmates. Don't, play, don't try to play chess with God and think you're going to win. Isn't it interesting that at the end of chapter 6, Haman's friends and his sweet wife Zeresh all of a sudden become bearers of deep theological insights. These same people who had stroked Haman's ego and encouraged him to build the gallows for Mordecai in chapter 5 are singing a different tune in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Thanks a lot, Zeresh. Why didn't you say that in chapter 5, Zeresh? Not that I think Haman would have listened if someone tried to tell him. What Zeresh says here is exactly right. She recognizes the futility of fighting against God's covenant people. To fight against God's people is to fight against God himself, and to fight against God seals your doom. 
Because to fight against God is to fight against one who is all-powerful and who is totally sovereign over everything, sovereign over coincidences, sovereign over circumstances, sovereign over sleepless nights, sovereign even over the forces of evil. How in the world can you win against that? If you are here this morning as a believer, be encouraged. God fights for His people, and He always wins. Be encouraged. Every single person in this room, Jew or Gentile, who is in Christ is part of the new covenant people of God. And God always sovereignly works on behalf of his people. What God is doing in the book of Esther, he's also doing in your life every minute. The book of Esther is normative Christianity. You may not see seas part or dead people raised to life or all those kinds of miracles we see in other parts of the Bible. Nobody saw that in the book of Esther either. Instead, what you experience is something even greater, which is Romans 8, 28. You know that, right? You know that verse, that God works all things together for the good of His people. All things, good things and bad things, pleasant times and persecution, when you're treated well and when evil conspires against you. It's all under the sovereign control of God. How might a clear, robust, and biblical view of God's sovereignty change how you view your life? How you view the coincidences? How you handle the apparent setbacks and failures? How it might change how you respond when evil is done against you, when you're slandered? If we get a handle on this doctrine... Get it from our heads, down here, deep in our hearts. It could really revolutionize our lives. And it can give us the strength to bear up under any difficulty. It could give us boldness in evangelism. It could be a weapon to slay fear and anxiety. An arrow used to target discontentment. A healing balm to ease our discouragement. God's sovereignty reminds us that when evil threatens us, either two things happen. And there are only two possibilities. Either God prevents it from happening, and that's good, we like that, or God permits it to happen because God is going to use it to fulfill His good, pur- His good plans and purposes for His people and His glory. We see both happening in the book of Esther and in the whole Bible. And we need to trust that God is wise enough to know when to prevent and when to permit. He knows what he's doing. The doctrine of God's sovereignty over evil empowers us to shed our self-protective, risk-aversive, comfort-worshipping ways and to embrace a life of radical, bold, risk-taking love. It empowered John Patton, who in the 1800s answered God's call to be a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, full of danger, full of cannibals, full of the blood of other missionaries who had gone before him. As a matter of fact, the last set of missionaries that went to those islands before Patton, they were struck down just minutes after setting foot on the beach. Patton went. He faced many dangers in his mission work. He he recalls one particularly frightening incident when he was surrounded by raging savages who threatened to kill him. This is what he said. He said, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene." My peace came back to me like a wave from God. 
I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. You want practical theology? That's practical theology. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is not some cold, irrelevant, intellectual doctrine to be debated by theological eggheads. Book of Esther theology... Romans 8.28 theology is survival theology for Deemer Webb. It helps, helps, helps me make it through life. It helps me during difficulty. It sustains me through trials. It, it, it's the only thing that keeps me from collapsing and spending all day in the fetal position when it seems like the world is spinning out of control. It helps me when I see reports of ISIS beheading my brothers and sisters in Christ, modern-day Hamans running around, strutting like arrogant peacocks in their rebellion against God, helps me to live out Psalm 37, which says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. That sounds good, fret not because of evildoers, but I can't obey Psalm 37 if Romans 8.28 is not true. I can't do that if the book of Esther is not normative, if God's not sovereign over coincidences, if he's not in control of the big things and the little things, if he's not sovereign over evil itself, then I, then I have every reason to fret because of evildoers. I have every reason to lay my head on the pillow with my stomach tangled up in knots because who knows if God's going to pull us out of this thing or not. But thank God that God is sovereign. Romans 8.28 is true. God works all things together for the good of his people. And if God's got this whole thing under control, then I can rest in that and not fret because of evildoers. Why? Because Psalm 37 also says, this just doesn't say fret not over evildoers. It also says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. It says a little later on, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. It goes on to say a few verses later, the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. At best, at best, the rebel against God has what? 70 years? 80 years? What is that compared to 800 trillion years in eternity? In hell, paying for their sins with 800 trillion more years to go, and another 800 trillion after that. Haman reveled in his sin and in his pride and in his plotting for a few years. With chapter 6, 
He's on the top of the world. He's got power. He's got unlimited wealth. He's got the empire at his fingertips. In less than 24 hours in chapter 7, he's dead. That's it. Time's up. It's over. Hope you had fun. It's time to settle accounts. And as we gather this morning in our nice, comfortable building, Haman has been in hellish torment for 2,500 years. And he's got trillions of more years of this ahead of him. Friends, we fret over evildoers, but who we should really fear is God. You see, we fear and fret over the wrong people. (laughs) I was talking with the kids about this uh, in, in Sunday school this morning. We worry more about what our friends think than what God thinks. We fear all these kinds of things out there. We let those things control and influence our decisions instead of the fear of God. Haman can hang me. ISIS can cut off my head. That's nothing compared to what God does to his enemies. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, that's New Testament. That's Jesus. Haman stands as a chilling example representing the doom of all who dare fight against the living God. Now, we need to be careful here because it would be very easy for us to look at Haman with turned up noses and say, well, it's a good thing I'm not like Haman. That guy was a piece of work. I can't believe how arrogant and proud he was. Thank God I'm not like that. Now, when you do that, guess what you're doing? You're being prideful and cocky and arrogant. You're being very... Haman-esque. That's a word I just made up. Haman-esque. You're being Haman-esque. But if we are offended by Haman, we need to take a step back and recognize that we have done worse. You see, Haman sought to exalt himself to the level of King Xerxes. He sought to, even if just for a day, usurp the honor and attention and authority to the king and have it all directed to himself. Haman sought to do that with Xerxes, king of Persia. You know where I'm going with this. You and I have sought to do that with God, king of the world. Whenever you sin, whenever I sin, what are we doing? We're seeking to exalt ourselves and put ourselves in the place of the king. King for a moment. When God says, thou shalt not, we say... I don't think so, God. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do this my way anyway. When we do that, we commit treason against the king. We have determined that our way and our path and what we think that we ought to do is better than what God says. And if Haman's self-exaltation against the king of Persia is proud and arrogant, what does that make you? When you lift your hand against God and place yourself at the center of all things instead of God. I'm not exempt. I've done it too. Many times. Thank God for the gospel and the blood of Jesus, which covers all of our sin. If treason against Xerxes, king of Persia, is death, what do you think treason against the king of the universe will be? That's why Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We may well up with enthusiasm and glee when we hear about the Hamans of the world being cast into hell. We may get satisfaction at the thought of ISIS burning in hell. 
But what we fail to recognize often is what Jesus says in Luke 13:3, unless you repent, you too will perish. You see, we want justice for everyone else in the world, don't we? We get angry when we see evil run amok, and we want God to wipe out all the bad guys. And yet the message of the gospel says, we're all bad guys. The world already stands condemned and convicted of treason. And our brief few years on this planet is simply death row. Our time is coming. Justice will be done to the rebels. You want justice? It's coming. Be careful what you wish for. But unlike Xerxes, unlike King Xerxes, God does not automatically wipe out all the rebels and the rivals to his throne. God reaches out to save and redeem rebels, something that would have been unfathomable to an ancient Persian king like Xerxes. Ancient Persian despots like Xerxes, they have the mindset, you rebel against me, you're gone. It's not what God does. Instead, he sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, because it's already condemned, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And how does Jesus save the world? How does he rescue rebels? By doing the exact opposite of what Haman did. Haman kept reaching upward for more and more and more. In his pride, grasping as much honor and glory and exaltation as he could get. Philippians 2, however, tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How different Jesus is from Haman and from us. And in one sense, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right that a man so perfectly good and righteous should suffer so much evil as what Jesus suffered. It must have seemed to Jesus' followers that this was so wrong and something must be done about it. It must have seemed that evil was running amok and things were out of control. But what have we learned in the book of Esther? That things are never out of control. That God rules the world, that God is sovereign over so-called coincidences, over all circumstances, and, and even over the free sinful choices of wicked men. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells the people of Israel, on the one hand, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. But on the other hand, Peter says, guess what? Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Because it was through Jesus' humiliation on the cross that Jesus took upon himself our sins, including our sin of prideful self-exaltation. And as he was hanging on the cross, all of those sins were judged by God the Father in Jesus. The judgment that we deserve is hell. And Jesus experienced in a moment in time that hell and provided payment for sins. And the vindication and exaltation of Mordecai in Esther chapter 6 is a glimpse of an even greater exaltation and vindication of a man who is more righteous and more deserving than Mordecai. Because Philippians 2 goes on to say, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what shall be done to the man that the king of the universe delights to honor. What the enemies of Christ meant for evil, God meant for good. The cross of Christ leads to the salvation of the world and maximum exaltation and glorification for Jesus. Through the cross of Christ, the devil was crushed, defeated, humiliated, overthrown. You lose, devil. Checkmate. And now, and now all who believe in Jesus, who place their trust in that man, all who give up their lives in exchange for his life, shall be saved from destruction. God wins every time. And so now the question is before you, what shall you do with the man in whom the king delights to honor? The Bible already tells you what you're going to do. Your knee will bow. Your tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Question is, when will you do it? Will you do it now while there is yet time? Will you do it willingly and with humility, gratefully receiving the salvation he has offered, knowing that all who humble themselves before him will also one day be exalted with him? Will you do it now? Or will your knee bend and will your tongue confess begrudgingly at the end of the age along with the devil and Haman and all who have persisted in their rebellion? And will you acknowledge Christ as Lord as a conquered rebel before you're cast into hell? That's the two options. There's only two ways to live. You're either going to bow now or you're going to bow later. Either way, you're going to confess. Trust me, the former is better. I urge you to choose life today. Yes, a day of final judgment is coming, but the good news is that it's not today. You live in a time where free pardon is being offered and a gracious invitation is being extended by the king for all the rebels to come back home. The next breath you take is proof of the gracious patience of God. Don't be like Haman who is persistent in his prideful rebellion to the bitter end. Turn while there is still time. Receive Christ, and with Christ, receive the joy, the peace, and the life that he offers. And receive and rest in the promise that you have a God who works all things together for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Esther chapter 6 and Esther chapter 7 and what you're teaching us through your word. Father, I pray right now that you would Help us to humble ourselves before you. Many of us in this room are believers, and yet we still need to humble ourselves before you because we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with the sin of self-exaltation. We do it every single time we sin. Oh, Father, help us with that, Lord. Help us to submit to your will and to your ways, to trust that you know what is best. And thank you so much for the gospel and for the blood of Jesus that covers and gets rid of all of our past failures and all of our future failures we're completely covered because of the sacrifice of christ and so we do not need to fear judgment and we thank you for that father i pray for those in this room who have not yet received christ as lord and savior but but have persisted in their rebellion against you i don't know who those people are but i i pray that you would help them now by the help of your holy spirit to help them to to bend the knee now and receive all the good things that you have to offer, all the wonderful blessings that come with Christ. Let them receive that now, Father, and avoid the judgment to come. Help them to choose life. Thank you for your graciousness and love. In Jesus' name, amen.